Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thank you for joining me here at the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 34. Well, for those of you that are following us on social media, you'll know that I'm currently in St. Andrews, Scotland right now. I recorded the intro to this week's episode before I left because, well, I didn't really trust myself to get it done this week. Tons of golf, tons of pubs. Yep, wasn't going to chance it at all. So I'm not able to do a PGA Championship recap or a Ryder Cup standings recap with a whole lot of you know specifics, but here goes. What an amazing victory by at the PGA Championship. What a worthy champion. And even though and were right there on Sunday, it was still great to see pull out the victory for his major championship. Now onto the U.S. Ryder Cup team. Do you really think that the move that made on the points list is going to make a difference? You know that and are most likely going to get the captain's picks, but do you think that might get in there as well? I don't know. We shall see. Only time will tell. Okay, moving on. I hope that you all are following us on Instagram. That seems to be the hot shit these days, and I'm too old for Snapchat, so I hope that it works for everyone. Follow us on Instagram at the Back of the Range podcast this week and especially moving forward. I'm going to be taking lots of pictures and videos from St. Andrews and a bunch of the sights and sounds from all over the city. And we'll also do kind of a giveaway. Since I'm not around to do Freetail Tuesdays this week, I'll grab some souvenirs from St. Andrews. So just stay tuned. I'll figure it out. I'll get some free stuff out to you guys. So I do it all the time. Thank you so much for the support of the podcast. When you tell people about the podcast, make sure you send them over to thebackoftherange.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You'll find all the information in the notes of this episode. And if you're listening and you like the episodes and you want free stuff, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you can do it and tell your friends. We'll keep bringing you amazing guests each and every week. So, While I'm in St. Andrews, the best amateurs in the world are at Pebble Beach for the U.S. Amateur. Our guest this week, well, he knows a little bit about that tournament. In fact, he participated in arguably the most exciting final in history. Yes, this week we welcome Steve Scott to the back of the range. He took Tiger to 38 holes in the 1996 final at Pumpkin Ridge, but that wasn't the only highlight of Steve's career. He played collegiately at the University of Florida, played on two Walker Cup teams, which is insane and he was the number one ranked amateur in the world in 1999 while his professional touring career may not have matched tiger's success he's been a successful teaching pro at numerous clubs all around the country he does some tv work for fox and recently he started two new exciting golf ventures which we're going to get into in this interview one is the outpost club the other is the silver club golfing society oh and how did i get steve to agree to do this interview well that's the first thing we discussed so, Steve, let's get started here at the back of the range. Thanks so much for joining me. Good to be with you, Ben. Well, uh, I, I went to no, uh, I, I have no limit and no shame as far as trying to uh, obtain guests for this podcast. So I had to go deep into the uh, to the depths, and I am going to tell the full story of how this episode came to be. So you and I are from the exact same hometown, Coral Springs, Florida. And fortunately, I have one of those mothers that kept every single photo of rec soccer and rec baseball and rec basketball. And uh, you went to a different high school than I did, but uh, we actually played on a rec basketball team probably at the age of, oh, what was that, maybe 9, 10, 11, something like that? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, and, yeah, and, that. and fortunately, I was able to obtain that photo and use it for blackmail and uh, and get you on for, for, for an episode. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I'm marginally ethical, and if it gets me a good episode, then so be it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So uh, we always kind of start these episodes off just, um, you know, highlighting the beginnings and, and the start in the game of golf, you know, obviously everyone knows your your history playing in the uh, in the U.S. Amateur Final in 96 against Tiger Woods. Uh, but but tell people how you actually got into the game of golf. I got into the game of golf. Uh, my father got me into it um, when I was he cut down a putter for me when I was five. Uh, started playing tournaments when I was 10 and just just fell in love with the, you know, the competitive aspect of the game. Uh, you know, it's just so much fun to get out there and compete and, 
you know, for me, you know, and you probably didn't like this back when in basketball days, but you know, for me, I was like a ball hog, you know, I just, if I got the ball, I didn't want to pass it. And I think that's probably what uh, led me into uh, golf because of the individualness of the sport and, you know, give me the ball. I want the ball and sure. I run with it. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't really useful with the basketball at all, so I really didn't care. But uh, um, so, so really you found that just personality wise, that's what drove you into the game. Uh, and got you passionate about it. And then you, you went to Coral Springs High School. I went to a, a, a rival one uh, down the road. What was your high school golf experience like? High school golf was great. We had a uh, we had a super team. We won the state high school championship uh, my sophomore and my senior year. Uh, I won it individually both of those years as well. Um, so you know we had a we had a really good team and. Um, and, you know, just one of those things that, that turned out, you know, turned out great. You know, we just had, we had a team that was, uh, that was really special and, and, you know, for a public school, it, it, it turned out to be a really good, uh, really good team. And you end up going to University of Florida. Your recruiting process was, I, I'd imagine being a two-time state individual uh, champion doesn't hurt your prospects, but were you getting a lot of attention outside the state of Florida or, were you leaning towards staying in state? What, what was your process getting into college? I went, I went to a few recruiting trips. I went to uh, Florida, Florida State, Texas A&M. And, you know, I kind of wanted to stay somewhat close to home. Gainesville is about four hours from home uh, for a uh, drive. And, and, you know, it just, it just worked out really well. We had, had a great team there. Um, and, you know, great coach and buddy Alexander who won the U.S. Amateur back in the mid-'80s. And, you know, we just we, – we, we had a super team. And, uh, you know, it just – it turned out to be, uh, you know, just a great decision to, to, to stay to stay in state. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had a few you – know, I played some national, you know, uh, junior events. And, and uh, but, you know, there really wasn't a ton of people knocking down my door. I didn't – you know, I didn't fly the ball – in the air with my driver, you know, as far as some people and, and things like that. But I had a lot of tenacity, and I think that's what kind of carried me through the, the sport. Sure. Who was on that team that you had at UF? Because I know, you know, obviously Coach Alexander, you know, I've spoken to other people actually that have played at UF, spoke to Duke Butler the fourth. He was on one of our early episodes. Um, can you just speak to the culture of golf at UF? Yeah, they've just been uh, – they've, they've had great teams over the years, and – um, they've had teams that have just really, you know, from, uh, you know, guys who still compete on tour or competed on tour, you know, from Chris DeMarco to, uh, Chris Couch to Brian Gay to all the way back to, you know, the seventies, the Gary Coke, Andy Bean, uh, Andy North, uh, they've, they just had perpetually had great teams at university of Florida, um, you know, at, you know, I played with Robert Floyd and Josh McCumber, uh, both All-Americans. Um, I played with another another guy named Carlos Rodiles, who played on the European Tour, and I believe he won over there. Um, and then who came after me was yeah, guys like Nick Gillum and and Bubba Dickerson, who won the U.S. Amateur, and uh, Matt Every and Camilla Vijegas, and you know, just there's just always been you know, great players that have come out of the University of Florida, and I wanted to be a part of that culture. Yeah, and the um, Gainesville is is not necessarily the, um, I don't know how I can say this delicately, but, I mean, it's not the most happening town. I don't know of a lot of phenomenal golf courses in the area of Gainesville. I know you're <laughs> Division One, but it's not like a, um, you know, it's not like an Oklahoma state where they have a huge, huge facility and it's kind of yeah. stuck in the middle of Florida. So right. what, what is it that, uh, you know, just for, for junior players that listen to this podcast or parents that have junior players, um, that are trying to make that tough decision of going to play college golf and where should they play and just weighing all the options, you know, what was it that you think caused all these phenomenal players to come out of that program, you know, in the middle of a, in the middle of a very large state? Well, there's very few places in the country where you can play golf 12, 12 months a year. Um, you know, even though Illinois and Northwestern have, you know, made some nice programs over the years and, and pumped out some really good players. Um, you know, when you can play golf all year round, 
I mean, that, that's, that wins out. I mean, you can, you know, you can get some bad, you know, if you're not in on the coast of California or, um, uh, you know, or Texas, maybe, you know, Oklahoma gets some nasty weather. Sure. Uh, you know, but Florida, the weather is, you know, it's, it's conducive for playing golf 12 months out of the year. So, you know, in that respect, why wouldn't you go there? Yeah. And what was the, um, uh, did your, did coach Alexander really like to push a high level of uh, competition between the players? What were some of your practice sessions like, or, or your qualifiers like, um, I mean, I would imagine it just had to be a pretty nasty fight to get into that top five each and every time that the qualifier came up. It was, it was always tough. And he always, coach always, always put the, uh, uh, the qualifiers at 7 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday morning. So we couldn't go out and, and enjoy the, uh, the nightlife as much as we would want to uh-huh. in, in Gainesville. And, uh, you know, it really made you dedicated to, you know, to, to put in the work and, you know, to be ready and you couldn't, you couldn't goof off. Um, you know, you, you, you know, you showed up on time for your workouts at the, at the gym and, and, you know, if you didn't, you didn't show up on time and, and do your job. I mean, it was, uh, it was not going to be good for you. So playing at Florida, the culture there really set you up to succeed at the professional level. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Florida, we, we always played against great, great teams and at great venues. And, you know, I think that's part of it. If, if, you know, if anybody's listening, whoever's listening out there that wants to go to college and play college golf. I mean, I think that anything I can, I can pass on in that realm is, you know, go to a place where, you know, a, you're going to play, you know, you're not going to just be a, maybe a, a five or number six guy, maybe getting in the starting lineup, get a place where you can play and get a place where they play good golf courses in their events. Because, you know, you, you just learn so much more by playing great. We played, we played great golf courses. We played places like, uh, you know, anywhere from Conway Farms to Pumpkin Ridge yep. to uh, we went to uh, Puerto Rico every year, went to Vegas. We, play, we, just, we played great golf courses um, all over the country. And, you know, that, that really prepares you. And then, you know, playing against the, the other top schools in the country um, really prepared, prepared us, you know, for the next level. Well, you, everyone knows about your appearance in the 96 USAM and not to move past that, but, but you really have had a huge or, or tremendous amount of uh, success as an amateur. I mean, I don't know how many people would remember the fact that you were the number one ranked amateur in 1999 three years after that that match uh, or that appearance in the u.s amateur you played on two walker cup teams i definitely want to ask a couple questions about the u.s am in 96 but um tell me a little bit about um tell me a little bit about the the qualifying and getting into that u.s am in 96 you know everyone remembers the final match but you're just a freshman or you had just completed your freshman season at UF, if that's, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was, it was, I had a, uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was just a, it was a great run that summer in 96. And yeah, I just had a, had a super, I finished runner up at about every major amateur event I could. And, um, you know, yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was, that was really a, a tremendous year. So you qualify for the USAM, you, you mentioned Pumpkin Ridge. So, had you played that course in some of your collegiate events, or had you not gotten out there quite yet? We played. We actually. It was funny because that it was. It was almost like fate because the my freshman year it was actually my very first collegiate event I ever played in. Okay. Was it pump? Was it Pumpkin Ridge? We actually every year they have the the uh, the well at least back then I don't know if they do now they had the preview like they called it the preview championship sure. or something where we played we played where we're going to play the NCAA at the end of the year. And that year was at the in my at the NCAA was at the honors course, and they they couldn't they basically their rules at the honors course in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they couldn't hold more than one major event a year there, and so they had to pick an alternate venue for the preview uh, the year before because they had hold, they had held another big event, and and uh, basically yeah we uh, yeah we played Pumpkin Ridge, and uh, that was my first collegiate event ever there, so yeah a lot of good memories at Pumpkin Ridge. So you qualify for the USAM after playing there, in, or you qualify for the USAM, and yep. now that you see you're going to Pumpkin Ridge, you just got to be kind of licking your chops or at least comfortable knowing where you're going. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely was. Yeah. And you were, I mean, just like everyone else, I would imagine uh, you're kind of under the radar because this big, uh, I mean, for lack of better terms, just this big storm's coming to ca- coming to town called Tiger Woods. I mean, it's his last, basically his last event as an amateur. Um, what was qualifying? What was the stroke play qualifying like? What was kind of the general vibe at that tournament? Well, before he ever got into match play, just was it just a... Uh, a, a typical USAM was it anything different that you kind of felt? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was he had, uh, you know, nobody in the history of golf had won three US amateurs in a row, and so there was a certain vibe about that. And what's amazing, I mean, you know, he, he Tiger always performed when he had to perform, um, you know, and and you know he had all the pressure on him that week and he won the medalist he shot 69 67 in the stroke yep. play yep and he was medalist in that you know he not only won the event he was the medalist in stroke play so which is really hard to do out of 312 players so um you know he just kept performing when he had to perform and for me and I shouldn't even have made match play that year I shot 79 the first round of stroke play and then I backed it up with a 66 on day 2 um, and, uh, you know, was really lucky even to make match play that year. You shoot, you shoot the 79 in the first round, not laughing at yeah. that. Cause I do that every other weekend, but you, you shoot 79, <laughs> you shoot 79 the first round is your brain just scrambled at the time. How do you get your head straight to go to shoot 66 the next day? Yeah. It was just one of those things that I don't know. I just kind of caught, caught lightning in a bottle and, and started making every putt and, you know, I really had nothing to lose. So. And I went out there and I played, you know, I played really hard and, uh, and I don't know, things just really worked it out. Just I, worked just got out. In a, I just got in a zone that day and, you know, I, the, the hole just looked the size of a bucket. So this is a question that I've wanted to ask someone that has played in the U.S. Amateur or has gotten to the, to the finals or the semis. But, um, you know, it's been that way that the U.S. Amateur Champion and the U.S. Amateur Runner-Up both get an invite to play in the Masters, obviously, if they remain as amateurs and they keep their, their eligibility. How much does that enter your mind when you're playing in that semifinal match? Are you thinking about, or do you remember thinking about, man, if I win this match, I play in the Masters, or are you still thinking about the trophy at the end? Well, you're thinking of both, but but what really made me think about it is, is in 1995, the year before at Newport Country Club, I made to the semifinals that year. Um, so I had a pretty good two year run in the U S amateur, but I made to the semifinals that year. And, uh, yeah, I can remember being very much consumed with, Hey, I could play in the masters if I win this match. And, and that was, uh, that was difficult. I, I barely lost, I lost in the, on the first playoff hole on the, um, in the semifinals in 95, but in 96, you know, my experience in 95 really, uh, really helped me. Uh, really, you know, helped push me, you know, past and kept me more focused, I guess. And, and sure. um, I don't know, I guess I didn't think about it. I thought about it, but it wasn't like the, the biggest thing on my mind. Right. Uh, it was, you know, I definitely felt like, hey, I, I belong here. And I, I was in this situation last year and I learned from it. And, and that was it. Obviously, play the match against Tiger. Uh, anyone who has followed golf over the last 20 years, 25 years, knows that uh, you, you took him 38 holes. Uh, you were five up after 18. Um, you know, everyone's familiar with the uh, incident with him not moving his mark back, or actually the incident of you reminding him to move his mark back, which if that had not happened that way, um, obviously he would have lost that hole and lost the match. But, um, you know, people can Google, they can YouTube, they can find all, I think the entire match is probably on YouTube. But the one question I was really curious about is, obviously, it's a David versus Goliath kind of thing. Um, it's the coronation of Tiger Woods. What, do you remember what the crowd was like? Were they in support of the underdog? And then maybe, you know, did that change as they realized, wow, this this kid's actually five up on Tiger and this is... This is not how this is supposed to go. Um, you know, Nike's there, you know, Phil Knight's in the crowd and uh, the media and NBC. I mean, everyone's just like, hey, this is Tiger's last day. He's going to win. Did you feel anything like that in the crowd? What was your feeling when you were playing that match? You know, the only thing I ever thought about was, you know, I remember walking down the first hole of the you know, 7.15 in the morning and the, the, the whole entire hole was aligned with people and, 
and I just had so much confidence that week. And I noticed that I noticed that his his sports psychologist uh, was not catting for him. Uh, Jay Brunza, right? Uh, Jay Jay was one that he was uh, a trained in the Navy and you know psychological warfare, whatever you call it. And and basically he he trained Tiger to you know to be really mentally strong and and he also caddied for. He caddied for him in, I believe, all of his previous USGA championships, and I noticed that he wasn't caddying for him that day in the finals, and it was kind of surprising to me. And and um, you know, and I said, "Hey, I, I I I turned to my my girlfriend at the time, now my wife Christy, and I said, so this guy doesn't have his he doesn't have a sports psychologist. He doesn't have a chance. I'm going to crush him.' <laughs> and nice. and I remember saying that walking down the first fairway and. You know, I fully believed that I was going to win that day. And, you know, it took some superhuman effort by, you know, arguably the greatest player that ever lived sure. to, uh, you know, to, to out, you know, outlast me that day. If someone takes Tiger 38 holes, uh, that's, that's an incredible achievement. And yeah, it's probably one of the greatest U.S. amateur finals, I think, in at least that I can remember. I can't think, you know, that's the other thing about it. It's so unique is that, there's champions of this event over in the last 15, 20 years since that those names don't really resonate all that much. Um, they really don't. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I looked at the entire list when I was doing research for this, for this episode with you, I looked at 96 and I'm looking at all the names. And of course you see, you know, you see Kuchar and um, you know, you see a, a several other names that, that won. And obviously with the UF connection, uh, you know, Ben Dickerson, you know, there's a lot of names, but then there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to, you know, call those people out, but there's a lot of names that just kind of faded into the background. Yeah. You, you've said many times in, in articles and interviews that, you know, there's not a day goes by where someone doesn't re remember and someone doesn't mention it to you. Yeah. Have there been, like, what, can you give me, like, one of the most unique experiences that you've had when someone comes up to you and says, man, I watched that match and I was there, um, can you think of one that just kind of stands out a little bit, a little bit more above the rest? Yeah. Over the years, you know, I, I, I saw, uh, remember Peter Jacobson, he was out there. He's a Portland native. Sure. I think still lives out there, you know, professional announcer now and, you know, great player on the tour for a long, long time. And he, he was out there watching that day. And I, I crossed paths with him at some point and, and, you know, you know, we were talking, you know, we were talking about the match and he was, you know, in his, his view of it and he was, you know, how he, you know, walked along the whole match and saw the whole thing. And, and, um, yeah, there's just people that, you know, come up to me. It's, it's hard to really pinpoint. No, anything, I know. But, I know it's a tough one, but, I know. but it's, uh, you know, it, it, it happens. It happens a lot. People say, yeah, I remember I was, uh, you know, I was in Mexico city and I saw, you know, like, like people were everywhere and they saw, the, you know, this event and, uh, they heard about it so that's it's it's pretty cool that it you know people remember it for so long and and i mean look it's it's one of those things that nobody had won three u.s amateurs so yeah. you know, he was he was the guy to do it and i i, I don't think we're ever going to see people don't stay amateur long enough they win one and then they turn pro and and you know to try to get the riches of the tour and you know people don't stay amateur long enough anymore well and speaking of that you know you Gosh, that happens to you in the '96 in the summer '96. You you got to play on two Walker Cup teams. Uh, yeah, that doesn't really happen much anymore at all either. No, nope, uh, there's, nope. there's amateurs that don't even bother staying amateur to play in the Walker Cup, or correct, or they wait till it's announced and they're like, "All right, I'm turning pro now." So, but yeah. but but you play in two Walker Cup teams, and um, you know I, I'm fascinated by team play. I love Ryder Cup, Presidents Cup, all of them, and you know you 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 play in two of them and you're just with some of these guys that, and you played against some of these guys in 97, you're, you're here, you're local. And uh, I mean, what was your first experience getting onto that team, getting the announcement? Uh, how special was that? Yeah. The Walker cup, just, you know, playing on two Walker cup teams and getting, getting the call to represent your country. Yeah, that's, that's probably the most special thing that I've ever been, you know, uh, you know, been asked to do really. Um, and for the Walker cup, you know, even like the, on the Ryder cup, you see the Walker cup is different than the Ryder cup, the Ryder cup. They, they, they pick was the top eight points leaders. And then, Nail. you know, however many, however many after that, the Walker cup is not that cut and dry. Every player on that team is selected. 
So you are not automatic, you know, if you win this or that, you're not automatically on the team. Um, and so, you know, you have to be selected and, you know, part of it happens to go to, Hey, you know, like uh, if there's a separator of something, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, maybe it's the individual's character or their personality or, or whatnot. Um, I, you know, could be, you know, I, I think it's very much a, 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 a prerequisite of, you know, being selected for the team. And so I, I think that that meant the most to me of, of any of the things that I've done or won in, in golf is to be selected to represent your country. And, um, you know, that's, that's, it's extra special. Yeah. And you, you had, so you really had two different experiences. Obviously 97, you win by actually your, your 97 win and the 99 loss are pretty similar in numbers. You dominated them in 97 and they actually dominated the U S uh, in 99. But, um, what are some of the, the, unique memories of people that you played with on the team. I know that, that whether it's uh, Jonathan bird, you teamed up with in 99. Uh, I know that they had a young Justin Rose. He's actually at the time, the youngest player to ever play in the Walker cup in 97. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the unique memories that you had from playing in Walker cup, whether it's an opening ceremony or practice rounds or, or competing? I, I, one of the coolest things we did was we actually had a practice session up in the New York area about a month before, um, you know, and we got to know everybody and, and, you know, that was probably, you know, it's, it's kind of like a team get together, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really, there's was no pressure sure. or anything. That was probably the most fun. Um, and then, you know, look, the whole week is just, you know, we're playing golf. NBC had national coverage of the Walker cup. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, we, we thumped them pretty good over here at Quaker Ridge up in New York. And then, you know, when we went overseas to Nairn in Scotland, we had, uh, I played alternate shot. Uh, my partner was Jonathan Byrne. We played against Paul Casey and Luke Donald yep. and a couple of, a couple of people who, who, uh, you've, you've heard of uh, a lot over the years and, uh, are still hearing of, but, um, you know, that was, that was pretty special. Jonathan and I were, maybe one under par through 14 holes or well, we had matched it on 15. We were probably one under par and they were, they had a putt of the 15th green to go seven under for the day and uh, alternate shot, which is really difficult. And they just didn't miss a shot or miss a putt. And I mean, they thumped us. So, you know, not a great memory, but one of those ones that just sticks in your mind, like, Hey, you know, no wonder why Luke, Luke got to number one in the world. No wonder why Paul Casey, still winning PGA tour events, you know, uh, this year, like he won at the Valspar in Tampa, sure. um, you know, stuff like that. It's, uh, those are probably the, those are the cool things to look back and say, you know, Hey, I, I played against these guys and, and, um, it was, it, it, yeah, Justin Rose being on the other team in 97. I didn't play any matches against him personally, but, um, you know, he's, he's gone on and done some pretty good things too. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was pretty cool. What uh, what do you think it would take to get the Walker Cup more exposure? I know to get it to the level of the Ryder Cup, that's a pretty big ask. But what do you think is missing from getting people and sports or golf fans to invest their their interest and time into following? You know, who's going to make that Walker Cup team as much as they'll follow it as far as a Ryder Cup or Presidents Cup? Well, I think you don't you don't get as much coverage over the course of the year in amateur golf. Uh, so the people don't know the the personalities and the of the individual players um, as much. I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and they and the you know the general public probably doesn't realize how great you know the the players that they're seeing you know how how great they're going to be. Um, and there's so many players that have played. You know, all your great players basically have played the Walker Cup from yeah. Tiger to Dustin Johnson to, um, you know, Justin Thomas to, uh, you know, Luke Don, you name it. You know, yeah. these guys, have, they've all they've all played it. And um, but, yeah, over the, you know, if you had more coverage of amateur golf on television and and you saw the people week in, week out, I think people would, uh, you know, the, the personalities might resonate a little bit more with the general public. Well, speaking of television, you know, not many people may, some people may know, but I just wanted to highlight the fact that you're, you're doing a lot of coverage for, for Fox, uh, whether it's uh, U.S. or I'm sorry, U.S. Open or um, other USGA events, you're, you're doing TV and, and, and 
Hulk coverage for Fox. How did how did that come to pass? Yeah, about uh, I've been doing it for about three years now. I, I've I've done some TV work over the years, some on course commentating over the years back in the days. Maybe when I well when I always missed the cut on what's now the web.com now, come on I did a few. I did some weekends <laughs> with them and. And, you know, I did a little work and, um, I don't know. I just always had an interest in it. Uh, I always, always enjoyed it. And, uh, for the last three years I've done, I've done a few events each year with, uh, with Fox sports and, you know, uh, covered the, you know, on their, like their digital streaming platforms last year, like for the senior open or the women's open or the U S junior was on FS one. Uh, this year I got to cover the U S open for the first time, which was very special. Um, uh, and I also covered the Curtis Cup uh, as well. So uh, yeah, it, it's 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 something I really enjoy doing. Uh, you know, certainly uh, certainly not something that you know I, you never know where it leads to. But you sure. know, I'm not uh, I'm not looking to make that my uh, my only uh, thing I do. Uh, but uh, it's a fun it's a fun uh, diversion, I guess, uh, if you will. Sure. And and you've played in Yosem. You played in the uh, you know the '96 open at Oakland Hills. You just mentioned that you're there at Shinnecock um, for, for this year for 2018. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've seen uh, over the years with how the USGA sets up a course for the U S open? Uh, I know we've, gosh, when I spoke with Joe Buck uh, several episodes ago, we talked about, uh, you know, the greens at Chambers Bay and then the rules issue with uh, DJ at, uh, at Oakmont. But, um, can you describe just what you've seen out of the U.S. Open since you played in it compared to what it is now? Yeah, look, I think it's it's you know it's always the most penal test of any of any of the four major championships. It's always that way. Um, you know, the rough is the longest. Um, you know, as far as they always play on a very difficult golf course. Although, although it looks like the you know the playing corridors and the fairways are. They seem to be a little bit wider yeah. as a recent history, um, you know, which which kind of lends itself to guys who hit it really, really far. I mean, you still have to hit it straight, but, you know, when you hit it far, uh, you know, if you're a little bit off, you still might be able to hit the fairway um, with with a wide enough fairway. Um, yeah, Shinnecock, they had some, you know, the eighth fairway at Shinnecock was 61 yards wide, but. You know, that being said, you had to be on the correct side of the fairway. There was a lot of strategy with it, but, um, you know, to be on the correct side and have the best angle. But, you know, you give you give players that wide of a fairway and it's it's going to be a lot easier. Um, and, you know, frankly, I don't I don't understand why they're you know, you hear a lot of complaints about it. And, you know, I mean, the fairways were huge and these guys were shooting really high scores, you know, hitting 12 or 13 out of 14 fairways. You know, they were shooting 78 from the fairway. So, you know, it's, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's not like it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not that much different over the years. It's always been the most penal test and you still, you got to hit and play. If you don't hit and play, you're going to, you know, you're going to have trouble. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I, I found it really fascinating with, uh, with the setup this year and, uh, you know, the discussion of how they lost the course on Saturday, the USJ lost it on Saturday, and then they kind of made it maybe a little too easy on Sunday and I've had conversations with people, and I guess the question I would have is, is it absolutely positively mandatory for the USJ to set the limit or set the, cor the course to such a point where if it dries up just a little bit more, they're going to lo lose greens or it could be viewed as unplayable with all the, with all the stress and all the negative uh, publicity that they've achieved? I mean, do you, do you, would you know why they would set, I mean, why would they set it up that close to fail? I, I don't know. I mean, it was, it was one of those things It was, and it doesn't take much. You get right. one walk, wrong wind direction. If, if like the 15th hole where the guys were putting it off the green, yeah. if the wind was a little bit less or maybe coming from a little bit different direction, not an issue. It's not an issue, but you know, you just need some moisture on the greens really. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, that makes it, makes it uh you know a little bit easier and they did that on the on the final round um but you know it was it was just a uh it was a situation where yeah it was they just needed a little bit more moisture on the greens they just needed more moisture yeah i just wanted to transition into into just something uh something else um 
you know, one of the interesting things about um, your your professional career, you 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 know chased you you played the web.com, you played the Canadian tour, and then you you know obviously decided like, look, you know, I'm I'm kind of treading water here. I need to make that decision to transition to something different in life. You know, was there a particular moment that you just said, you know, this just isn't for me anymore, other than looking at missed cuts or or financial or dollar amounts or anything like that? Was the the aspect of the game and loving the game kind of fade for you? I, I think when you when you feel when you have to do something every day as opposed to want to do something every day. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it is a job. You know, and, and I think you see this with you see this with a lot of a lot of players. I don't care what profession it is. I mean, if you're you know, if you have to go, if it's something that you, you know, you kind of you like to do, but you don't have to do it every day when it turns into something that you really yeah, you really have to go do and have to go practice. And because it is your job, I think it you know, it, it definitely takes on a different perspective. And um, I, I have a lot more fun playing it now. Sure than I, than I used to. Um, uh, I mean, I still, you know, I've always loved the game, but yeah, when you, when you have to do something every day, uh, it, it can become tedious and monotonous and, you know, you got to go hit putts for, you know, two hours, you got to go chip and you got to hit bunker shots. And there's so many parts of the game where it's like, okay, well, you know, you, you got to do it because you feel like you're losing ground if you don't. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and also I just, I didn't, I didn't have all the physical attributes like to carry the ball 300 yards like some of these guys do. And, and, you know, I could fly at 265 or 70 and, you know, that's kind of not, not good enough. Uh, it's definitely not good enough now, but it, you know, I was kind of seeing the writing on the wall and I just wasn't, uh, it wasn't there. When you transitioned to being a club pro and being a teaching professional, um, were you surprised at, at how quickly you fell into that? Was there a passion for teaching the game that was kind of starting to appear when you were transitioning out of playing professionally? Yeah, it took me a couple of years really to kind of, you know, play club pro golf essentially and, and, you know, be chatty with the members that I would play with. And I mean, it didn't just happen overnight, but yeah, I, the best part about it is, and the part that I still love, I still love teaching. Uh, teaching is, uh, legendary teacher Bob Toski, yeah. um, who lives down in South Florida. He's, uh, uh, geez, he's almost 92 years old. He had a big heart attack actually recently, but he survived. And uh, uh, he was a huge, a huge uh, influence in my, you know, in, in what I'm doing now and and becoming a, a club professional and helping helping others in the lesson tee. And you know, I really you know really enjoy that part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that was, yeah, that was a big part of it. And, you know, I just, you know, being able to help people and share stories and, and, you know, my understanding of the game and, and, uh, you know, helping people play better. I think that was the, you know, that was the biggest part that I, I, I love. Yeah. I, uh, speaking of Toski, I, I recently sat down with him for an episode and I was fortunate enough to spend about four hours, uh, in his house, 10, him telling stories uh, wow. only half was recorded, probably good for both of our sake, but, uh, um, <laughs> Toski is a handful, even at 91 years old. Uh, can you share a Toski story? Cause I can't he, imagine being, being an apprentice, so to speak under Bob yep. Toski. You gotta be on your toes. Cause I only had four hours talking to him about golf stories. I can't imagine what that was like. My, but, my favorite, my favorite time actually didn't come on the lesson to you. It came, I caddied for him in an event one time oh, gosh. and it was, that was really, really special, but it really got me into his world of, of how he, of how he thought, how precise that he thought. Yeah. Um, and so, so we're going down the very first hole and, um, you know, like the, it's, it might've been 140 yards to the front of the green and 155 to the hole. And, and I said, okay, you got 140 to the front plus 15 you got 155 and and he says plus 15 what and i said well plus 15 yards he's like yards i deal in feet you oh, tell me in feet God. how many feet how many feet it is <laughs> i said oh okay all right it's 45 feet okay so okay so so that was that was that was the first thing uh -huh. and then they were going down the second hole 
and I mean, mind you, he's 78 at the time that I'm chatting for him. What event was this? Not to cut you off, but what if you know, it was in a, it was in a, a nondescript, uh, there was like some senior mini tour around South Florida okay. that he got then, and, and I just happened to be around. It was actually a course I lived at, uh, in, in Wellington, Florida. And anyway, so the second hole was like a 520 or 30 yard par five. And it was downwind and he hit the good drive down there and it runs out there pretty good. And, but he still got like, he had still like 265 to the hole. Oh gosh. And, and there was a fairway bunker out there and, I'm giving him like, you know, I'm saying, okay, you got 265. Let's find a good number we can lay up to. And because there's a fairway bunker, you had to kind of play around. And, and, you know, he kind of looked at me, didn't say a word. And he picked out his three wood and he, he ran the ball up on the front of the green. And he's 78 years old. He hit, I mean, it must've hit it at least 250. Um, and, and, and all he put the club back in his bag. And I just like, I just, that was the last time I wanted to like, you know, give him advice of anything because it was unbelievable how how much talent that he has and you know had and still has yeah. in, in 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 at 78 years old he hit it that far i'd never i'd never think that he could ever do that he did that's amazing yeah i was i was pretty much in awe too when i was with him i i think i read his book twice before ever ever going over to his house because i was like i know i'm gonna have to be on my toes for this because you don't Bob Toski just has a very unique conversational conversational style where he is asking you questions during a conversation, and if you don't have the right answer, you feel like such a dumbass. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you got to be on your toes. Yeah, and I definitely felt like that. So, um, well, before I let you go, I do want to kind of hit on what you're doing now. I know you've had uh, several um, uh, head club pro positions at at country clubs up in uh, New Jersey. And throughout the country, but right now you're doing you're doing something really unique, and I really wanted to ask about it and find out a little bit more. So, tell me a little bit about the Outpost Club. I, yeah, I was fortunate enough to uh, to come come on board as the head professional of the Outpost Club uh, on January one of this year, and uh, the Outpost Club is a really cool National Golf Society. Uh, we have a membership, uh, and you know yearly dues like any club would have, uh, but we, we don't own real estate. We have a lot of clubs that we partner with uh, a few as our home clubs and other as partner clubs. And um, we have about 800 members around the country and we run, uh, we run north of 70 events throughout the year uh, domestically and internationally. So we will have events at, at really just, we'll call them just architecturally significant golf courses um, all over. Um, uh, it, it's just a, it's a really special place where, you know, the membership, uh, you know, they appreciate the history and the traditions of the game. They like to walk and take caddies. They play quickly. Um, and they just really appreciate the game on, on a, uh, on a great level. And I, I, I always say it like this. It's like you take, every club has like a handful of great members that really support the club and, and uh, clubs that standalone clubs all over the country. The outpost club is like a, a conglomeration of those small pockets of great members of all these clubs. And they've joined the outpost club and we, you know, there, we vet the process. We make sure that everybody is a, you know, good upstanding citizen and, you know, appreciates the game. And, you know, they're, they're very well respected at their home clubs before, you know, we allow them to become members of the outpost club and, you know, because we want our members to, to stick around and we know that, you know, we're guests everywhere we go. And so, you know, we have to make sure that we are, uh, you know, we have people within our membership that are going to uh, represent us the way we want to be represented. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this concept is, you know, not just the fact that you're getting uh, access to these great uh, architecturally uh, significant courses and you're kind of getting the, the really prominent members, I'm assuming really good players and really good um, just all around guys you want to hang out with. Now, is it open to men and women or uh, what, what are the age we ranges? Have, yeah. Yeah. We have women members. I mean, we are the age ranges from, 25 to 75 um anybody who really just appreciates the game and and uh you know 
know, just, just loves the game, likes to travel and play great courses. Um, uh, you know, we, we can do that. There's a lot of groups that, that, that have the, you know, we'll call it the pay for play aspects of what we do. Um, but, but we, what really separates us is the, uh, the camaraderie of our membership and the number of events on our schedule. Um, there's no, there's no other group that really has the event schedule that we do. Um, you know, we just, we run events all over the country, around the world. Uh, we run events from, you know, South Africa to Japan, to, uh, New Zealand, to St. Andrews in Scotland, to, we just had an event in Canada last week. Uh, we're gonna, you know, we have a ton of events in the U.S., uh, so we're we're all over the place. We run a lot of great, fun events that people just can't wait to come back and play. And are you traveling to almost all these events? Just really, are you? Is it a tournament, so to speak, that you're running, or is it just a a weekend that they're there? Or how how does that whole how does yeah, that work? We do we do have a competition within our within each event, uh, and not everybody is there for the competition aspect of sure. it, uh, but a lot of them are, and and. Uh, you know, a lot of them are there just for the camaraderie and to be able to play a great golf course. And uh, for me, I mean, because we have so many events throughout the year, I do have we have three founders uh, that travel to events. And I also there's also uh, two other PGA professionals on our team, uh, director of golf, Mario Belomo, our tournament director, Jay Freitag. Uh, we have our general manager, Melissa Belomo. Uh, they live out in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, and so we, we're kind of split up regionally and, and we, uh, we kind of take care of a lot of events in our regions and, um, you know, it's, it's just a, we just have a great time doing what we do and on our side of the team and the members really love and appreciate this, the, the access that they can get and have, you know, and the camaraderie that, that they share at each event. That's great. So it's almost like just a traveling game all over the country, all over the world. And if you can make it, yep. come on in. Exactly. That's great. So, Steve, you mentioned the Outpost Club, and I love the idea and the concept behind it where you're, you're getting – um, you're getting members of their own home club. They can have this as kind of a supplement where they can travel around the country, see different places. But you, you said that it's also, it's somewhat competitive, but mainly um, a little bit more of a social atmosphere. Is that right? That, that's correct. I mean, it, it's, um, I would say, you know, we run a lot of 16 to 32 player events and, you know, our specialty really is that. And so we have, you know, of those group, I would say, you know, a third to a half of the players are, are there for the competition. They want to win and they want, you know, the trophy or what have you. Uh, you know, the other two thirds know that they, hey, they might not be able to win or have like the game to win. Um, you know, but then they're there, you know, to, to enjoy the great golf course and the camaraderie uh, that the Outpost Club brings. Sure. Actually. And now you mentioned something earlier before we started recording that you have another arm of the Outpost Club, so to speak, that is actually tailored for the guys that, yeah, they want to be social, but these are the serious sticks that are grinders that they want to, they want to really compete in everything they do. So do you have something for people that want that kind of an experience at one of these, these courses? Yeah, no, essentially this is going to be a completely, a completely separate thing. Uh, uh, you know, this, this, uh, silver club golfing society is really what it is. It's a, you know, it's going to be an invitation only society that really, uh, you know, we want to have, uh, more geared towards competition. You know, the players, uh, that are going to play and, uh, you know, join our society are going to be, uh, under an eight index. You know, we want, we want people who, you know, who are, who are very good players. What we're going to do is we're going to have a, um, inflated, you know, we plan on having four separate flights, uh, based on your handicap index range. Um, you know, so people can, uh, you know, compete against each other that are kind of in the same, you know, within a, a couple, uh, strokes, uh, index wise, and they'll play scratch within those flights. But, you know, the, the big thing is there, and there's other groups and, and, uh, things that, that run uh, events like these and whatnot. Um, you know, really, we want to make it so it's more of a not really like a transaction like maybe some of the other ones, but more of a sure. uh, camaraderie driven society. Um, the Silver Club Golfing Society is really, you know, 
geared towards that. We're going to play great golf courses. Um, and then, you know, you're going to build your, your network of golfers uh, within that. And, you know, and, and they're all going to be very, very good players as well. So, you know, you're going to, you're going to really understand how to, you know, get your competitive game going and, and really geared towards uh, competition on great golf courses. Um, well, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I would love to ask you, like the RBC and the other stuff like that, but maybe we'll, we'll save that for another time. Um, let me get you out of here with a couple of quick questions, just like a couple of quick bucket questions at the back of the range. So, uh, we asked this one all the time and get really different answers. Um, Jack Nicholas won the masters in 1986 at the age of 46. Compare that to a potential fifth green jacket of tiger woods, which victory would be the most substantial. I, I think they're both pretty substantial. I think, you know, for, for Tiger and where his game is at, it would be, and all the ups and downs that he's gone through, it would probably be more substantial. Um, so I'd probably have to say, I have to say him just because of the, you know, personal ups and downs that he's been through. And I think it'd probably be, you know, as far as the story goes, it's probably, you know, a, probably a better quote unquote story. Yeah. Um, well, that's, yeah, yeah, I'm getting about half and half right now in these answers. But uh, yeah. the other one, if you had to give a major to anyone in history, alive or dead, uh, zero majors, 18 majors, who would you give a major championship to? Who would you give a major championship to? I don't know. I feel it, being at the Open Championship and is coming up here in another week or so, I, I think you'd have to give one to Jean Vanderbilt. Wow. <laughs> feel sorry for him. You've got to feel a little sorry. He... He, he had, man, you know, he, he kind of deserved how great, you know, how great he played. And he, you know, he threw it all the way in one fell swoop there on the 72nd hole, essentially. But, um, yeah, yeah I, I'd have to say for, uh, you know, for, for that reason, I'd, I'd give one to John. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, I, I've played Carnoustie and I was on that 18th hole looking at all that. Huh? I'll, I'll take one too if you if I, if I can give one to myself. I'll you, take one too if a U.S. amateur counts. We, uh, <laughs> you know, I would. That would be really cool. I would, I, you know, normally we, we normally we don't allow people to, to give one to themselves, but we, we can make a special <laughs> Coral Springs, Florida uh, uh, exemption here. And yeah, uh, well, Steve, man, really appreciate the time. Um, kind of wild. Uh, uh, all these years later, our, our paths cross on a golf podcast of all places, but uh, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, best of luck with everything in the future. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up again soon. And uh and perhaps play some golf, little Coral Springs High School against Terravella High School. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun, Ben. I, I appreciate you uh, having me on and, uh, you know, talking about all the uh, good times in, in golf. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the back of the range. Thank you so much to Steve Scott for joining us this week. Really was fun to catch up with him. Hope everyone is enjoying the U.S. Amateur. Go watch it on Fox. Go check out our friend Joe Buck doing all the coverage. I'll be back in the States next week for another episode here at the back of the range.